welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. Once again, I'm excited. I kind of wish you could be here, but I got my good buddy Evan Williams right out of the Hoyt factory on today. Thanks, dude, for coming. Appreciate it. Well, you didn't know. Oh, thanks for having me on. I guess the only... How's it going, Knock On Nation? (laughs) Yeah. The only place you really came was to your office early, and then we had to deal with with Skype. Yeah. Yeah, great great issues when uh, I get involved with technology. Apparently, I uh, I have a way of crashing systems and and people's whole systems. I wonder <laughs> if that's the truth, though. I'm the same way. There's there's times where I touch stuff. I mean, I must emit a pretty crazy field, but yeah, I touch stuff and it's just fried. It's like I've done it a lot of times. So maybe we're the same. Yeah, our IT department loves me. I think I'm down there on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just, uh, my one buddy Justin was up here the other day. We were working on my new website platform. And uh, I forgot what happened. I, th- I, I mean, he's like a total IT guru. And I, I'm like, have you ever seen the um, Saturday Night Live you know, company company computer guy skit, and he's like, no. And I was trying to find it for him, but I couldn't <laughs> find it. Did you ever see? I think it was with Jimmy Fallon. It was funny. Yeah, my my wife showed me that one when I, I think I touched her computer at one point, and the whole thing just turned off. And I was like, ah, I'm sorry. You need a you need a hex suits. Evan, you need to get a hex, Ooh. a hex clothing suit from Slinkard. Wear the gloves and everything when you're around the office to block your. That's gl- actually not a bad idea. Uh, yeah, that could be good. I, I will. Ha- I said I'll have to catch up with Mike at at ATA show in a couple weeks and and do some do some talking. Yeah. What um do you do you ever have animals just bust you all the time because they're looking at you? I mean, do you ever like feel like your stuff's giving you the sixth sense more often than not? Maybe there's something to this, dude. You're you're like an electrostatic machine. Well, it's it's actually funny that you mentioned that. Um, you know, with that with that Kansas buck I shot. Of course, I don't know, I don't know how many times I've told that story here in the last couple of weeks since I harvested him. But um, I got back to thinking on stuff and just about. Every single mule deer I have shot since 2010 has been looking at me. And it's not because you're just noisy and clumsy? It's like just for no unexpected reason? Well, some of them, you know, I have the decoy with me, so I mean, I know I attract some some attention that way, but no, it's it's actually weird. Um all right, you need a. And we went on a stock with with my brother this year, and and we were seventeen yards from this buck, and and I mean out of nowhere we're just standing there trying to look into this ravine and figure out where he's bedded at, and 
man, next thing we know, they're they're coming out right below us. It's like, well, we're not even moving. Yep, you've got a you've got a six cents freak meter. You better call Slinker yeah. and get hexed up. You got to block your well, electronic I, your electronic waves, dude. Well, and and you know they they did the initial testing with that system um, or came up with the technology um, testing it on sharks. And I bet you I haven't caught a fish since. <laughs> Dang, like dude. 1999 is the last fish I can honestly say I remember catching. You remind me of um, Jamie Foxx's character in the last Spider-Man, <laughs> Electro, <Right>? or whatever he <laughs> was. <laughs> okay, well, so obviously your dad's part shark, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you got a yeah, you got a super impulse charge. Um, no, you need a hex suit. That's it. We're gonna call Slinker. Make sure you get one of those, and we're gonna we're gonna block all the the uh, six cents stuff. That's that's that, think how good of a hunter you'll be. I mean, you're already good, but if you're not freaking maybe everything I'll out, maybe I'll actually kill a whitetail though too. Though, yeah. What about bears? Have you ever gone after bears? They're pretty heightened on that too. I I haven't. I. Uh... I was supposed to go up to it was either Alberta or BC this spring, and uh, just missed my my window of opportunity and, and couldn't make it happen. That was going to be my first one, and so uh, it's definitely on my list. You know, being being here in Utah now instead of uh, out in Colorado, I'm a little closer to Idaho, and they've got a real good spring season. You can get up there and, and do some spotting and stalking, and of course that's that's more my game. So I'm looking forward to finally getting out and putting a good brewing on the wall. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I need to give a couple. I've got to backtrack. A lot of people listening. We're just buddies talking right now. So some of you listening probably are keyed in like, what the heck? So first off, I want to say Evan um, started working for Hoy. As a, it's a year ago, isn't it? Almost. Is it almost exactly a year? Yeah, no, it's, it's more than a year. Yeah, it's more than a year. Yep, September September fifteenth was my first official day in two thousand fifteen. Right. Yep, yep. Yep. And you used to work with uh, Bill Pellegrino in Colorado Springs at the Archery Hut. Super awesome shop. Really good. Really good guy yep. too. I love Bill. He's a, he's a freaking kill. That guy is. He's got to back off. He can't, he literally wanted some meat and. There was like I guess leftover shotgun tags in Iowa, and he somehow or another got one over the counter, um, and then well you're actually he bought a doe tag, but I think you can party yep. hunt, you can party hunt in Iowa. So he actually got a doe tag, and um, one of my good buddies, and well all of our buddies actually is a game warden, and he offered to. Uh, to party hunt to hunt with bill with his buck tag in case bill saw a buck he offered to tag it for him which is legal in iowa and so bill Mm -hmm. comes for one night dude and he shoots like i think it's mid 160s or something i mean it was a it was another one yeah you haven't seen it yeah and i haven't i haven't seen that one um we've been playing playing phone tag the last week or so um because so he left Colorado and went went home for 
um, his mom's birthday and dropped his gear off with Craig out there and then finished driving over to the East Coast, got to the birthday party and hit it on the way back and I knew he was crunched for time. But he did the same thing, like, I think it was three years ago and he had his youngest daughter with him and they were walking out from being in the stand that night and this buck comes cruising across in front of him at like 35 yards and he shoots it with his with the muzzleloader same same scenario and it's like a 165 10 and you want to talk about a golden horseshoe i mean he's, he's got, got it. it he used yeah. to draw that governor's tag out there um, cuz i know they changed kind of how the governor's tag is drawn uh, two or three years ago in iowa um, and up to that point, he would draw that tag every other year. So he would have a Kansas tag just about every year, and then every other year, he'd be dual hunting Kansas and Iowa, and he'd just, hey, I'm going to be gone for at least three weeks. Here's the shop. See ya. Have fun. I'm going to go kill some deer. Yep, that's that's Bill, and then he comes into my into my area for like twenty hours and shoots um, a, a really good buck and a doe. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's Bill. But anyway, Bill's got an awesome shop. You were there for a long time. You were an archery tech behind the counter, just like I was when I was back at my old shops, and um, then you ended up kind of putting in for what you saw as your dream job and you got it nailed it i, I did and it's it's funny because and we've got another buddy uh danny ferris um who's in the industry and yep. and you know danny lived just down the road from me out in, in colorado and he knew i was coming out for the interview and i hadn't even touched down in denver coming back and my phone was already blowing up you know when we hit the tarmac and Danny's going how did how the interview go I was like dude there's no way I said I was sitting there staring at Randy's 200 inch buck and I'm in Mike's office and heartbreak is right above me in Mike's office and I'm staring at heartbreaker and Mike's caribou and the bear on his wall trying to have a, a job interview and it's like I was just sitting there in awe, tongue-tied, you know, trying to keep the drool from, from running down onto my pants. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it went well, and, and I got the, got the job offer, and um, we were pregnant at the time, and with our due date, uh, we actually were able to push back uh, my start date. So I, I got a week of elk hunting in on my tag in Colorado and then moved out the, the second week of September ahead of the family and got housing and everything lined up and went right into catalog season. It was it was a crazy couple months being out here and hitting the ground running, that's for sure. Yeah, for those of you who aren't like in the manufacturing world, during like catalog season and new product season, it's absolutely chaotic and at Hoyt you know they've they've even got um, they've even got rules where you're not you're really not allowed to even answer your phone during like product shooting time because it's so busy that you know they have to just like apply rules to everyone there to 
to get stuff shut down and make sure everything's happening and it's a pretty exciting time but it's also the the worst time to be a new employee and and trying to you know get a grasp of well maybe the fact that you were there during that week now everything seems easy might be a better way to start it, it did go a little bit smoother this year um and we've we've kind of changed how our structure went so everyone everyone that's kind of seen things this year um we did the defiant brochure and it's just you know a, a fold open so it was a lot less hectic and and time consuming at the time um but now we're in in the stage where we've just pushed that timetable back so we're still going to have a master catalog like we've always produced only now it's going to be an ata item so now we're right in the middle of finalizing that so we can take it to print so we have it for the ata show so um instead of being in september in the middle of elk season and and the high country mule deer season we're able to get it pushed back so um just kind of shifted some things around to kind of alleviate some of the stress levels and the load where it has been yeah that's like that's kind of a no-brainer that's how it should have always been i've never really understood why you know you kind of bring product out right kind of well the ata show just loses its loses its purpose now because everyone knows what's new you go to the ata show and you know it's a lot of that stuff we've already seen people aren't like doing big reveals at the ata show there's still a few that do but now the ata mm -hmm. show really what it's kind of the only thing that you're going to see there that's like new on the market is really smaller companies that that uh show up there and just kind of have a a brand new um product that no one's really experienced yet i mean that's really the only the only thing that you see there because really in the point of the ata show which a lot of consumers don't realize is you know it's it's really a place for manufacturers to meet with the dealers you know a lot of mm -hmm. uh a lot of shooters have turned it into a place of going there and shoot giving you guys their resume and putting their hand out but I keep telling people that's not the place to do that. You know, it's not the place no. to do it. Have no, you? and you know, make make the contact and say hi, and and it really is. You know, the ATA, the the show itself is designed, you know, as that dealer show. You know, that's where the bulk of all manufacturers are going to write up their orders for the entire year. I mean, you're getting dating programs and um, some show specials to help incentivize those dealers to load up and, and space their orders out already for the entire year. Um, that way they can lock in their products and know kind of what their timetables are going to look like and when they need to have product in to ship to all their dealers. And, and it really helps the manufacturers get their production and manufacturing at a level where they're running smoother and, and not having a lot of access materials and products throughout the year and so it's it's always interesting um i went the first time in 2013 and three different times i was trying to place orders with manufacturers and getting cut off by guys trying to talk to whoever i was with it ended up being you know a vp or a president or a, a pro staff manager trying to take my order guys were trying to get in there and give them resumes and talk to them about 
this show that they're on or um you know things they've got going on and and trying to get a deal and that's a good way to get some dealers mad at you too (laughs) yeah i'm actually (laughs) glad we're having this discussion there's a few there's a few times there where where um some people specifically ask you know let's talk at the show and i kind of want to catch up but um it's just a really good point people people sometimes just totally put themselves ahead of that and it's um for for the for the people that are especially the the dealers and the manufacturers that are making a big expense to go to this place and you know you some of the some of these places you only get to see your rep one time a year and then all of a sudden like you said someone's coming in and getting in the middle of it i mean it's no different than if you're sitting at a you know at a at a business dinner and you're right in the middle of that and then someone comes in and wants to start talking a different story it's just it's not very courteous so and i keep telling people too it's mean to say it but i remember when we would go to the ata show we literally had like a box or a big bucket for all the people that were coming up and giving you a sales pitch and taking you their taking their uh press packet it's like yeah just throw it in that pile a lot of times that pile never even makes it back to the factory anyway so it's not uh it's not time well spent i don't think yeah yeah and it's you know you you and i have been in similar positions both on the retail side and then you know now on the manufacturing side with um the position i've transferred into um and it's it's a tightrope walking fiasco some days uh, you know trying to make sure everyone's taken care of and and not only on your staff but the people who are looking to approach you and and taking the time to get everybody handled make sure everyone gets the the message that you want to deliver and and doing it the best way that you can and and you know, I'm a guy, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and, and it's really hard for me to tell somebody no, quite honestly. Um, but it's just, you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, like I said, I know you've been there, and it's tough sometimes because you want to hear everybody out and get, get whole stories and, you know, take that time to get to know who you're talking to and what they've got going on. And just, like I said, I, ATA show isn't the best platform for that. No, no. Well, all right, we shot the bull long enough. We're we're buddies, so we can <laughs> we can do that. Um, but so we need to talk. Let's talk about a couple different things. I've got some questions that people sent in um, that I promised them I would kind of save for the next podcast. So um, let's just jump into a few of those. We'll get a few of those done and. Uh, well, just so you know, <laughs> even though you're from Hoyt, you may get a non-Hoyt related question, but you've been behind the counter to bow shops, so that's good too. So this first question I got right here is from uh Dubtown Waldo. He's got a his his profile picture is Jean-Claude Van Damme from Bloodsport. It's pretty funny, but he says, uh, thanks for all you're doing. Help. 
any tips for 3D yardage estimation? Says so this will be my second year in the IBO Hunter Fingers class, which is crazy because Bill was probably the best finger shooter ever, too. That's the thing. Bill's the guy we were ever. talking about. Yeah, the one that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Bill's won more more pro fingers tournaments than, well, probably more than anybody. I guess yeah. that's up for debate. I don't know. I, I know. Yeah, actually, I know he's got eleven world titles. I'm I'm almost certain that at least seven of those are finger titles, and I think every single one of his shooter of the year titles is in a finger class. Yep. Yeah, he's a finger shooting son of a bee. That's what he is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what uh, you've you've shot quite a bit of three D too. So what kind of what kind of tips you got for this guy, Evan? I'm gonna put you on the spot. Don't mess up. Don't wreck my don't wreck <laughs> my, my my nation. Right. Well, and 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 I love I love judging. Um, it's nothing I've ever been the best at obviously um i'm short so seeing ground is extremely hard especially when you're talking you know (laughs) asa and ibo putting putting little ditches in and and shooting across ponds and some of those fun things um you're short you're not but a a lot of (laughs) you're not a leprechaun (laughs) well when you're standing there next to bill who's six three and tim gillingham who's you know five nineteen yeah yeah um you know, it's like, what do you guys see in that for? Because uh, I can't see past this mound right here at 18 yards. <laughs> uh, there's a target down there. But um, for a lot of years, I was a, a ground judger. Um, and in Kansas, where I grew up, you know, it's it's a little bit of roll, but a lot of the courses were set up on, you know, fairly fat flat ground or in heavy cottonwood bottoms and the rolls were so small that you could just get on your tiptoes a little bit and see everything and so you know growing up playing football like you did i was the same way i knew what 10 yards was i looked at it all the time um so i would just walk it out to the target and then split the distance between the target and where i was at and rejudge that as a confirmation number and i was good but shooting more of the, the ASAs, especially this last year, um, a lot of the things I've picked up talking to the pros and the semi-pros is judging the actual target itself. So knowing the size of the target, you know, whether it's a coyote or whether it's a wolf, and then the details. Nice. I like how you, you, know, threw, I like how you threw that little dig in there at me. I'm sure you remember my, my <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Canada. Yep. I got to interrupt you. Well, and, and sorry, I got to go I got to interrupt you for a minute here. So, um, Evan's talking about there's two different ways. You know, one we're talking about um, range estimation, which in 3D archery is really important for those of you listening who are new because. 3D archery, the kind of the basis to it, at least really the basis in the past, was that it was a tournament set for preparation of hunting. So in order to try to make that you know more realistic, the targets were at unknown distances. 
So you have to step up to a target and you actually have to take your best guess at what the distance is. And depending on the speed that you're shooting or depending on the length of distance to the target, that uh, your ability for that range estimation becomes more and more important. So at first when um, Evan was talking about how he liked to look at the ground the same way I did. Um, the reference for that is, you know, when I used to play um, football on a higher level, I was always, I was a quarterback, so I was always judging or looking down and, you know, trying to see whether I had, you know, second and three or first and ten. And since I really did a lot of training on the ten yard line for mainly for you know, you're kind of in the red zone. We did a lot of red zone training. So I've worked in that 10 yard realm so long that that distance was, is always really easy for me to determine. Now, some people that shoot at 20 all the time, they may really be really good at finding that 20 reference. So what Evan was talking about is, you know, he was going at first when he started trying to figure out how to judge targets properly, he was going with a distance that was easiest for his brain to recognize and that's how it was for me too but once that starts to not work because a lot of these professional ranges the people who set them up they start to get really tricky and put rolling hills or big trees or small trees depending on the size of the target they'll do things to actually make your depth perception get fooled um, which makes it a little bit more difficult so then you started talking about and I'll let you finish but you started talking about just being able to identify the target so there's different targets in 3d archery and it's proven that the, the, the longer you look at something and you really practice on one particular thing the, you start to be able to judge how far it is away simply because it gets smaller and smaller and smaller away. You also can start to see less details at certain distances if you really pay attention. But um, there's certain targets that they have out there that they intentionally try to, you know, try to fool you because sometimes they have a medium-sized deer or a small deer or a large-body deer. So obviously if it's a medium-sized deer, at 40 yards it looks much further away than what the large size deer would look so you really have to learn to identify your target correctly and this past year I was shooting um, a f I think it was a I think it was a make-a-wish make-a-wish shoot or um, actually this one was um, the oilman shoot We've got a lot of great people up in Canada a lot of great shooters but um, at the oil shoot, the range keeper painted the coyote target with the same colors as what's on the wolf target. And because I'm not shooting 3D as much as I once did, I, I was certain I knew the exact distance to the wolf. And I was actually filming. I'll probably... I'll put that back out on, um, out on my Instagram account. But I was certain i was shooting with um another guy i know cody drapers which made it really funny because we heckle each other as it is and i was certain that i knew that this 
Wolf was 44 yards away because it looked so small and I was certain that's where it was going to be. And when I set my, luckily it was angled really hard, but when I set my pin, I drew back and when my shot broke, I was certain that I was just going to pinwheel that thing. And I hit that thing right dead in the back of the head because, because it was so much closer than what I thought because it was actually only the, the coyote target. It wasn't the wolf target. So, you know, the targets probably 30% smaller. So I, I misjudged it by at least 30%. So that's, that was the comment that Evan made there. So now that everyone's filled in when the and the tricky thing with those two targets is if they're quartering and you can't really see the tail the, the only difference between them is that the coyote tail tucks underneath and the wolf tail kind of curls out behind the legs and if that target is turned and you can't really see that tail it's man it's hard to to tell the difference in which one you're really shooting at well, son of a gun. See, I haven't I haven't been in the 3D realm long enough to know the little details, Evan. That's why we have you on here. See, those are the things. Those are the things you have to learn to identify. If you want to become good at 3D and good at judging, there's always those little secret things. Like back when we shot field archery, at first, a lot of people had difficulty recognizing which size target face it was. You know, whether it was, people didn't know whether it was a, a 40 centimeter face or a 60 centimeter face that one always confused people and originally they put the little feta emblem on the bottom corner on one size but it wasn't on the other so people were people got keen and got smart about looking with their binoculars and finding this little bitty logo well unfortunately someone let the cat out of the bag about the little secret and then all the range keepers started folding the corners in so that you couldn't tell which freaking face it was and it makes a huge difference on how far you f you feel like that target is so here's the deal that was a good tip evan but now somewhere there's going to be some sneaky range keeper it's going to be cut, cutting the tail off of, off of right. the, the coyotes and, like, putting it on the wolf and, like, putting it, like, quartering mm -hmm. to you just enough to where you can see its butt. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's that one. So, all right. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I like I'll probably tip. do it in Foley this year, too, just just because of it. I would. Yeah, if I, if I was here, I would. I'd, I'd try to make it a point for you not to give away super secrets like that secrets of the pros yeah those pros trusted yep. you evan yeah i'm sorry i let you guys all down <laughs> those pros trusted you uh, I, i'm sure i'm sure i will be getting plenty of phone calls and emails about it going really come on i, I remember the first time i um i told someone from europe what they needed to do to get x10s to shoot properly and I remember Dave Cousins gave me the dirtiest freaking look I've ever got from an archer. He just looked over at me. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, dude. I said, let them figure it out. They still got to beat us. But he was so mad. He had a, he had a, a very general 
way of telling people how to set up their X10s. Just it was mainly just to mm-hmm. pacify them, so that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't have all the tips of the pros. He wanted to save some for himself. I just told everybody yeah. I was kind of a blabbermouth. Well, and it's you know it's funny because there's there's that competitive nature in all of us, um, and you know part of my background before archery was competitive rifle shooting and going to you know whether it's the the top u.s guy and and going to different people saying hey you know, i'm having trouble in this position you want to look at me and and how do you set this up or how do you set that up you can get a lot of just broad vague answers on yeah you know you should try something like this and it might do this for you and and things like that and and our is the same way if you a lot of guys if you find a little trick that works for you you keep it quiet because it i mean that's your edge well it's not the edge on knock on podcast i'm all about right i'm all about letting the edge out of the bag that's why i don't shoot pro anymore because i don't now i now i have i have i don't have anything to worry about with pissing people off i can i can um i can I can see something that happens at a tournament, and if I think it was bullcrap, I can say it was bullcrap. And if someone's talking nonsense in the industry, I can call them out on it. Works pretty good. I'm kind of happy in this little yeah. in this little realm I'm in right now. It's it's a good place to be. Well, one day one day I'll get there. You are there. Uh, until then, uh, until then, I'll just. Uh, yeah, you're take each question with a grain of, grain of salt and and watch <laughs> what kind of information and tips we give. <laughs> you're actually in a real crappy spot right now. That's where I was at when I worked at Matthews. You can't even if someone does something really stupid, you can't say anything otherwise they'll be narking you out at work and feeling like you have something personal against them. So you've got to just kind of no comment. No comment. <laughs> See, I know that's that's what I that's the sucky part though about you know when you get really in depth and get get in there, that's what happens. Well, okay, let's. Uh, I want to talk to Dubtown Waldo. It's an interesting signing name. I like it. Um, so, did you? Have you practiced much, Evan, when it comes to just looking at the target, like judging according to distance? I got really I, good. I, I, I got really good that way, but um, it takes an investment. What what you really have to do if you're going to be competitive doing it that way, especially at tournaments, is you have to make the investment of the actually having the targets and and looking at the targets exactly how they are. Um, if you're getting targets that are like used or worn out or you have like different sections or different years of sections or you know you start to lose the crispness on the target, you, you don't really get to refine your details as much. Um, I have, the other thing too when it comes to judging yardage, I've just I'm a firm believer that um, if you if you constantly judge first, and then 
once you're, you know, really spend time to try to figure out the technique that works for you, whether it's finding 10 yards or whether it's finding the halfway point is another way that's really good. Figure out, you know, if I ever have a target where I'm just stumped and I really don't know where to start, I'll just find that halfway mark because there's a good chance that I can at least figure out where a 20 is. And if I can figure out kind of where a 20 yard mark is in reference to that halfway point, a lot of times you're going to, you're going to at least be safe to shoot for center tens. Um, The other thing is once you do have your best guess, even when you're out in the yard, just planking around, even if you're not really training for 3d, it's always good to, to, you know, to not shoot on the same exact target line all the time, you know, go up and shoot your targets from a slightly different distance you know instead of just standing at one spot maybe move up four or five yards or move off to the side and judge those targets again and just judge them really find that mark and if you're wrong if you don't see that number perfectly then really try to get your rangefinder and let it be your teacher say okay where was the 20 at and you look to where you think the 20 was at and then you range oh crap okay well i was off two yards there you know or where's the 10 at or where's the 30 you know by really you can take one target and you can almost correct or self-correct three or four different ways and it's all confirmation of the brain of showing exact distance you know to a 20 mark even if the target's not at 20 or the exact you know if you figure out where your 10 is past that you know really using your rangefinder as a tool to confirm all those exact pinpoints is pretty dang critical to learning to judge properly yeah you know and and i worked quite a bit on it back in um 2014 um at that time colorado the the state association shifted all their shoots so they were no longer on Saturdays they were on Sundays which means I could still work my Saturday at the shop and then on Sunday I could now go out and hit every single tournament um, where in years previous to that I might get two or three in through the entire summer because everything had been on Saturdays so we were very fortunate we had two really good 3D courses um, one was on the Air Force Academy, and another one was actually set up just off of Fort Carson Military Base by the Colorado Division of Wildlife. They both had McKenzie targets, or uh, I'm sorry, they had the Reinhardts on Carson, and then the Air Force Academy had a mix. So if I knew that I was going to one of the local shoots and it was going to be an ASA 12 center score is how they would do it, um, but it was on a Reinhardt target. I could go down to the division um, range, and what I really started doing was walking up to the first target, and literally my rangefinder's in my hand, and just walking until I saw that target at 20 yards. And then when I thought I had a good mark and I was at 20 from that that target, I'd hit it with my rangefinder, and then if I need to adjust a step or two to make sure that that's where I was at, I would stand there and look at it at 20 yards for five minutes, and then just start, okay, step back and look at it at 30, and step back and look at it at 40, um, and really working on seeing that at those different distances, and then 
I'd come back to the start after looking at 20 targets, and I would pick a random spot on a different angle from where I had initially looked at that target, and then go through the entire course and judge it and shoot it. And if I was high or low and I knew that I'd broken a good shot, hit it with the range finder and, okay, well, I'm two or three yards hot. or um, And then my second shot would be for whatever the range finder told me. And that's also how I was able to confirm my sight tape marks. Oh, yeah, yeah. That Both of those are, are definitely important. What... Um... What did Bill do? Like, how? What was his main practice? I mean, he was always prepared. Did he just shoot a lot? Like, he's. I mean, he's. He. He has a great work ethic, so I could picture him just practicing his ass off. Oh yeah, you know, and and so Bill's a full time firefighter, and uh, their shifts end super early in the morning for him, and so a lot of times he'd get off work at the fire station and he would go immediately to the range at like six o'clock in the morning as the sun is just cracking out mm-hmm. get all of his gear out and he's on the range still in the gray light of morning and he's already got arrows down range you know and he would shoot for three four hours and go out and have lunch and run some errands and come into the shop and and get some things there if he needed to and and we had we had a really, really good staff, um, extremely knowledgeable, and and were able to do a lot of multitasking and handle a lot of things with customers, and and we had a good reputation. And a lot of times, he'd come in, and goes, "Yeah, well, you guys got it all handled. I'm going to go out and I'm going to go shoot another round this afternoon." Um, and if he felt comfortable with where the shop was at that day, he'd get you know three, four hours of shooting in a day. Um, and may only do that, you know, once a week or or every other week. But I mean, when he got when he got some good quality time, he was doing it. And it was super super early in the morning, or he's out there turning on the floodlights at night to to get his arrows in for the day. So just just an incredible uh, attitude and mentality on setting his bows up and the perfection of the sport. Well, you need to be Bill's agent. I mean, you obviously yeah. really like him, but he is a badass. But now, now I feel super inferior around him because of you. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> it sounds like he puts in. I mean, that's ridiculous amount of time. Some people do that though. Some people train that much. I've always been. You know, there's people like. Well, I guess Dave Stepp would be on the far other end of the spectrum. Dave would just, like, <laughs> his way of practicing judging 3D targets would be um, probably to go pull his arrows out of the 3D target from the last week that he was out there shooting and then get on an airplane and go to an ASA shoot and win it. That was Dave Stepp's way of practicing. But um, And and this one of those freaks that just has it like and and you and i both know there's some guys that they just do like they can look at a target and they may not have seen that target in six eight months and yeah that thing's 42 and a half yards or oh yeah yep yeah and the people that are good at it are good at just like looking and their brain just understands that that 
estimation, that difference. I mean, some of these guys that we're talking about back then, I mean, laser rangefinders were just coming out. I mean, people people really had to do a good job of guessing, and then you know everyone was like stepping the targets off. So you really um, you're really self checking all, all the time, and I think that's why so many people got good is because. Nowadays, it's too easy just to go out and you just put your rangefinder on something. Like, you know, people having their rangefinder, which if you're hunting is critical, it should always be there. But my point of being getting good at actually judging targets is get out there and judge. You know, I, I spent more time looking at targets than I ever did shooting. Um, when I was good at 3D, I wasn't a person that that was just exceptional at, at range estimation. That was the one thing that I had to work on the most. And I really had to just spend a considerable amount of time just looking at targets that I had no idea how far they were. And then and a lot of times I would just set up a range just to range estimate, just to look at, just to judge targets. And I would go through and I would judge the whole course might take me 30 minutes well then i would i'd either relocate and judge everything again not even with shooting or um Mm -hmm. i would set the course up again move the targets all around and go out and then shoot around where i was actually using my bow but all that stuff there is going to be critical to judging targets um there's a ton of different ways some of the earlier podcasts we talked about it but hopefully that gets you going in the right direction Jean-Claude Van Damme so next question here yep. I got Evan this is um, from Whitetail Fit and um, he's he's asking when you're full draw and settling your pin do you let your eyes focus just on the target or just on the pin or do you switch back and forth until the shot goes off um so and he's and he's also saying, do you shoot with both eyes open, one eye closed, or slightly squinted? So, so I yeah, you per- go first. personally. Personally, I'm I'm of the mentality and the the school of training that I focus on what I want to hit. My my pin goes blurry. It, it's kind of in the area. And I just work my shot, whether that's on a thumb button or an index trigger or a hinge. Um, and yes, I have hunted with all of those options. Um, but I focus on where I want that arrow to hit um, because the subconscious mind is so much stronger and powerful compared to the conscious mind. So I can be looking at a tuft of hair, and that, that pin might be four or five inches away. And when that shot breaks, it just, your subconscious is magically moving muscles where your eyes are at. So if you've ever experienced a shot where, man, you know you were on there and then you remember the last second either looking at the antlers or looking at how his front leg might have moved or something caught your attention and distracted as the shot broke and your arrow drifted that direction because your eyes and your focus was taken away from where you wanted it to be and you were subconsciously moving that arrow with your eyes so i i shoot both eyes open and i focus 
on what I want to hit and just kind of let everything else go to tunnel vision. It's mind control. This is what mm-hmm. it is. <laughs> no, yep. and, it, you're, and you, you are right. You'll uh, be surprised what you can do with it. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Well, I've, yeah. The reference that you made with people shooting horns, that's really common. It's super common that mm-hmm. people shoot a deer in the antler, and it's because that's where you're looking. So um, the way I would t- talk to you about it is I always, I look, um, I slightly go back and forth between looking at my pin and looking at the target. The majority of the time, um, I'm looking at what I want to hit. You know, I'm not focusing on the pin. If you focus on the pin, you're going to start aiming. That's inevitable. You're going to start trying to hold solid. You're going to start aiming rather than focusing on pulling through. So you really want to be conscious that you're using the right pin. And I say that I go back and forth because... You do have to really continually check that your peep and your scope housing are centered properly. And you also have to be consciously aware and constantly monitoring your bubble um, in your sight. So, you know, I'll be looking at the target and then if then I'll, you know, my focus will quickly change back just so that I confirm I haven't let my peep start to slide low in my housing, which is pretty common, or let the bow lean too far away from the hill to where you start to lose your bubble. Um, you know, I, I monitor those things, but the majority of the time, I'm just letting my subconscious hold that pin that's fairly blurry and just allow it to cover the target and I just stare at the target, and as I'm staring at the target, your pin is going to have movement because, you know, you're tr- you're telling your brain exactly what you want to shoot, and you're staring at it, yet you're trying to cover it. So I just really feel like the mind is trying to confirm that what you're telling it to hit is still there, which is why a lot of people have movement um, in their sight pin, and they can't really get it away until they start to to be an aimer and I'm not a big advocate of, of that. I'm, I'm way more um, an advocate of being dynamic and pulling through the shot the same way an Olympic style shooter would shoot. You know, they don't just stare at their, if you ever look at an Olympian, most of them have an aiming apparatus that is very primitive, a big circle, a big hoop. Very few of them have pins and all they're doing is they're they're looking through that circle to the target that's behind it. And if you have looked and saw how accurate the Olympians are, then I think it's I think it's um, pretty dang efficient evidence that you don't have to be holding perfectly solid. Now, when it comes to the eyes, I can tell you that. I focus, or I, I, I keep both eyes open. I slowly, I, or I kind of slightly squint my left eye, mainly because I want to focus on just my right eye to confirm my peep and scope housing position because you want a perfect eclipse. So when I slightly mm-hmm. squint my left eye, I'm confirming that positioning exactly 
and then I'll slowly let my left eye open back up again just so that it's gathering more light. So that's the way that I do it. Um, I personally think that's the way that everybody should do it. Now, if you're struggling with eye dominance, which is a fairly common problem, a lot of people send me messages about that because they have an eye dominance problem, but they don't really want to. They don't really want to have to change to be a left-handed shooter just because because of their eye dominancy. So I get that question a lot. I'm sure you do too. And yes, yep. you do have to deal with it. I mean, if you're you you, ha- you have to be shooting the same way as your eye is dominant, or you have to have a patch and cover your eye up so that you're not looking out of that dominant eye. For example, if you're a right-handed archer, meaning you're pulling with your right hand, if you're left eye dominant, then you almost you have to, you know, well, if you're le- if you're right-handed and you're left eye dominant, you have to cover that left eye so that just your right eye is looking through your scope and your peep. Otherwise, it uh it actually gets weird because if your left eye is dominant, the further you shoot, your pins, if you're a right-handed shooter, they would have to go further and further and further away from the bow for each distance. So like your 20-yard pin might be in the center, well, then your 30-yard pin is going to be low left of that pin, and then your 40-yard pin is going to be even lower left of that pin. And that's because that left eye dominant is kind of taking over. And to, to understand it, it's kind of the same effect as if, you know, if you pick your thumb up and you close your left eye and you put your thumb on a target, if you then close your right eye to look at it with the left eye and your thumb moves way off target, which, you know, that's what will happen, um, you know, that's showing you how far off and when your eye dominancy changes. So, you know, ideally, if you're using your subdominant eye as soon as your dominant eye takes over it's way off target so you don't really want to have to deal with that um but i like to keep one eye open slightly squint open it back up um which last year when i posted that um 300 round that i shot just during practice that was one of the things i i filmed the whole thing for was because i wanted people to kind of see the whole process of, you know, going through an entire shooting sequence. And I wanted people to see how I draw, came to my anchor, came into my peep, slowly squinted my left eye, confirmed my sight picture. It opens back up. I let off the safety or I put my finger to the trigger and then I start to engage my pull and Mm -hmm. good things happen. Yep. Yep. And, and, slow and steady oh yeah yeah so what um what release are you shooting right now i know you're not shooting mine that's okay no um you couldn't couldn't get one anyway yeah (laughs) not yet my my hunting one i'm running the too simple and it is the the knock-on green version um forrest happened to have one of those left laying around i was able to to snag away from him Jeez, and uh you did get lucky it, it might have been out of his personal stash <laughs> it was probably so, out of out of my personal stash that i have sitting in his office is what it was from <laughs> I, I bet it was because <laughs> it didn't come, it's not in a package it was just 
here's a Ziploc bag with a release. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm running a I'm running a button on my hunting setup this year, and I, I did that for a couple reasons. One is I shoot an inch and a half fixed blade broadhead, and so with the head design on the two simple, it actually enables me to do two different things. One is I can run a slightly longer D loop. So I've got a little bit more flexibility in a BCY24 or a D braid, uh, which I was running a, a D braid this year on my hunting setup. Um, and it keeps that string off of my face. The other thing it's allowed me to do because of the design of the body of it is it actually pushes my peep about about a quarter inch further up the string because of where everything is hitting me in my anchor point. So naturally when your peep raises in your string, your arrows raise in the target, so you need to move your sight higher. Um, so that actually gained me some distance on my sight housing since I shoot a single pin adjustable and allowed for better clearance of my broadheads. So that was one of the things I've really enjoyed about shooting that particular release, as well as just the way it fits my hands. You know, I, I'm five foot nine. I have small hands. I have small feet. I'm just not gifted in in that realm. So the the design of that really fits my hand structure very very well and comfortably. Um, on the target side, my hinges. I think I've got five different ones in my pouch right now. Um, I prefer a brass. Um, I've got one that's got a click, but it's a real, real light um, step from there. And I'm actually gonna gotta flip that over because just as I anchor, I hit click and I barely get into my shot when it breaks, so it's a little too fast for me. Yeah. Um, most time, yeah. Most time, I like shooting without a without a click, so I can anchor. And, and get set into my back and then start executing. Um, and then I do have a, a true tension. So a lot of people talk about back tension. And to me, when, when people talk about back tension releases, they kind of clump target releases into this broad category of back tension. One thing that coming from the shop that I used to differentiate was a hinge is a back tension style. A thumb should be shot properly with back tension. An index should be shot properly with back tension. Um, and then you have a true tension. So that's your um, Carter Evolutions, you know, Hamsky Breakthroughs, Stan Elements. It's ones where you physically set the internal components to release at a given weight. So it's truly based on the load that you're inputting into the system past your um, holding weight. To me, that is a true tension style back tension. If that if that makes sense, if I'm explaining that well. Yeah. Um, yep. And and when I feel like I'm getting lazy in my back, because right now I'm just I'm not in shooting shape. Um, I might get 15 arrows a day if I'm lucky. And when I get farther in, if I'm able to try and get a full Vegas round in, my last you know four or five rounds are extremely sloppy. And if I get weak in my back, I can 
ditch my hinge and grab my true tension, drop that thumb and release that safety and just start activating my shot. And I have it set. I think right now I'm really heavy because um, I'm coming off of the Spiral Pro and I haven't reset it where I was holding like 21.7 pounds. So I've actually got it set at like 26 or 26.2 on a breaking weight. And with the Prevail, I'm at 19.3 pounds holding weight. So I'm really having to stay strong in my back and, and really execute. So most of the time I'm going to shoot a 6 o'clock shot because of the duration I'm into that to execute a proper shot. And I'm okay with that just from the standpoint of I know the execution is there and I'm willing to have the longer shot process to break a good shot. What um, what's your opinion? Well, which prevail are you shooting? So this we're talking about the new Hoyt bows right now. Um, which prevail are you shooting, Evan? So the one I have right now is I have, and and I I don't want to tell you that because I know next time you see me at ATA you're going to get mad at me. Um, I've got a forty inch, and the reason I did that is. I started with the X3 cam, and in the X3, I'm in the number one cam in the E position, so I'm in the, the longest draw length slot in the smallest cam, right. um, so it's a slightly shorter axle to axle than running um, the SVX in the number two, and I, will, or I am working on getting a 37 set up with the SVX. So I can feel both geometries for my head position and draw length, as well as being able to shoot both cams. Because I get obviously two brand new geometries um, and two brand new cam systems. I get a lot of questions from pro staff and consumers. Tell me, you know, how does this feel versus this? And if I do this. You know, what kind of result am I going to get? And if this is my draw length in this cam and this is my peak weight and this is my, you know, let off at 65%, then what's my actual holding weight going to be? And and getting those questions delivered properly is something I really want to work on. Um, so I want to have both bows set up so I can feel both because I know that the SVX is not near as aggressive as the Spiral Pro was for a lot of shooters. Um, Brian has reworked that cam, our, our engineer, to where it's not as aggressive, um, and especially at my draw length, that holding weight has been reduced significantly. Um, I shot the Podium 37 last year with the Spiral Pro in the number three cam in the A position, which is the shortest draw length on that cam and I was pulling 61 and a half pounds at peak but still holding 21 and a half 21 and three quarters holding weight which is a lot of weight when you've got a guy in a bigger cam or you know an inch longer draw that's in a better position on that cam for efficiency and instead of him holding 21 and a half he's holding 19.7 or 20.1 so a lot of those reworked kind of bring everything into a, a more even range 
Well, you're going to have to send me one with those on there because you have my curiosity now. Last year, <clears throat> I wanted to try the new spirals. So I got the, well, no, it was two years ago. Last year, yeah, last year I shot the Hyper Edge. But two years ago, I got the spirals. And they just, as much as I continually try to work with them at my draw length, they just aren't something that I really have fun with. Um, you know, I just feel like I, I want the opportunity to be a little bit lazier in my, in my shot. Um, and, and I, you know, I say, I say I want to be lazy. The reality is I know that I don't shoot enough to where I'm not going to have lazy shots. So I want to, I'm pretty much setting myself up to be able to do that. And a lot of times when people question me about what cam they should get on their bows, you know, a big factor in that for me, and a, one thing that I really want people to to answer for themselves is, how much are you really going to put into practicing with that bow? Because if you're not able to fully commit to it, then you're way better off picking a certain cam system that's going to that's going to allow you to be a little bit weaker in your shot and not want to take, you know, not want to take the string away from you and not be as aggressive when it comes to creeping forward and things like that. Now, I don't know why you said I'd be mad at you for having the 40. I don't think there's a problem. Well, the, the, the last conversation we had, um, so, so, for the 10th anniversary of the shop, John came out and had a, had a training clinic with us the night before. And, and I gotta, I gotta give you props and compliments because you rolled through 26 shooters very, very efficiently that night. Um, but a conversation we had the next day when we went to the airport was, I remember you saying, you know, at your draw, your head position was back a little bit. I don't know if the 40 is a good geometry for your head position. You should probably look at the 37. Um, so that's why I made the comment because that every time I look at man, I I, I really kind of want to try that 40 inch geometry and 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 play with that. Um, that conversation is the first thing that comes to my mind is you know us trying to shift over photos from the weekend and John going. You need to shoot a 37 and get away from those spirals. With your shot, you need to shoot a, a GTX style where you can just kind of relax and get through your shot where it's more comfortable. So, well, that's that's why I made that comment. Now that you made, now that you've changed your, um, now that you've changed your release, and you've, you're able to shoot that longer D loop, do you feel like that that's slightly changing things though? Because I mean, now that you're able to shoot. Um, a different D loop size, you know, that string position on your face could be quite a bit different than what I was looking at then. Yeah. And with my schedule change too, I've, I really focused more on the physical side, getting into the gym and, and the last year has been a sole focus in strengthening my back up just for getting in better and locking that into position specifically for shooting a spiral cam. So it's it's 
like you said, if you're going to do it, commit to it in every aspect, shooting, physical training, and and everything. And, and a lot of it's knowing your shot. Um, yeah. Are you a hard puller? Are you a, are you a push pull? Are you just a push? Do you like to sit on the back wall and just kind of let your hand relax? So, and that's where having the option between the two cams is, is extremely nice. Um, I don't know how well, you know, Doug Wenzel. He's a, another friend out of Colorado. Yeah. Doug, Doug grew up Doug shooting used, with Randy. Yeah. He used to set all the ASA courses, dude. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, you're talking Doug classic is, archery stuff now. You're talking like the good old days. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. And and Doug and I talk quite a bit, you know, because having having shot sequences and and you know if I need something quick, he's you know four hours down the road in Grand Junction, and same thing, you know, he's asking, I'll get ready to order my bow, you know, being able to say, well, Doug, I know your shot, or John, I know your shot, or um, you know any one of my pro staffers that I get to watch enough on the on the course. I know your shot. This cam is going to work better for your specific style of shooting because you like this type of release. And you like to execute it this way. This cam versus this cam. This is the pros and cons, and and I think this is going to be a better route for you. Oh yeah. Well, I think. There's so much variance in that. Um, I thought I had another question kind of based on that, too. Let me look. Mm, let's see. That's a different question. I thought I had something on that topic, actually. Well, same type of, same type of cop topic. Um, a lot of people who are sitting around that... 27 to 29 inch draw length really ask me whether or not they should get the turbo model or stick with you know like a 30 model personally i think it's the same thing how much are you shooting how aggressive are you against the wall if you feel like you're just a hard puller where you're on the back of that wall you're always pulling hard you come through your shot super strong then you could get away with the turbo. If you're going to have your bow in your closet for three quarters of the month, you're going to be better off not getting the turbo. The speed isn't going to help yep. you compared to you being able to maintain and actually control that bow. Um, let's see. This guy, this is from Zach10. Um He's asking, um, oh, he was talking about being on the stand, being unable to draw his bow. Like he said something, a deer came by and he was not able to draw his bow and he has no idea why. Um, any chance you have any tips or anything you could do? And then he said, I'm shooting a carbon defiant turbo and I've also been having some trouble with broadhead flight. Um, right now I've got a G5 striker fixed blade i'd like to stick with a fixed blade what do you recommend well zach what i would say i haven't seen you so this could be an unfair evaluation but based off what you just told me i've been in that exact same position exactly i think 
Um, this is way back. Like, I don't even know how far back, but PSC came out with a crazy fast bow. I bought it. It was supposedly the fastest bow on the market. They had it at 80 pounds. I bought it. I bought. I had some original, like, Beeman ICS arrows. Um, had some really light ones. The shop was pretty bad at setting me up. I actually... He got me a weak spine arrow simply because the arrow was lighter and he was trying to get more speed through the chronograph, which is probably something some people do to other guys that come in the shops that just want to see speed. But anyway, um, I struggled to pull that bow back. I didn't shoot a lot back then. I was still a kid, um, but I could muster pulling it back three or four or five times and then I'd rest a while and I could maybe muster pulling it back again. Well, spent a lot of time deer hunting. I mean, months without seeing anything. This is back when I was just on public land. It's actually in a tree in the middle of a swamp, and then all of a sudden here comes a buck. A really nice deer. You know, probably would have been the best buck I had shot through my teen years. And I went to pull that bow back, and I would have swore that someone had, like, super glued the whole thing together. It just could not, I could not get it to bend. And as soon as the buck got away, and... I sat there for a minute and like tried to compose myself and settle my nerves. I grabbed it and pulled it right back. Granted, that bow, I, str I knew my broadhead flight sucked. I struggled to really group, but I was just so focused. I was a kid. I wanted a heavy poundage bow, and I wanted the fastest thing in town. And it's just a common mistake. I mean, you know, people... People sacrifice performance for accuracy a lot in life. And you just, you really need to maybe take an evaluation of what you wrote and think to yourself, okay, if you can't pull your bow back when you're in a hunting situation, you're pulling too much weight, period. You, you should be able to sit in a seated position, put your arm to the side, raise a bow, and comfortably draw the release hand to your face without having to raise that bow up at all. Um, you know, you need to be able to do that. If you can't, then you're already drawing too much weight. If you're drawing excessive weight, then your likelihood of you changing your posture or twisting your arm in and really trying to lock out that front shoulder as you come to full draw, the chances of that are super high, which also means your chances of torquing the bow or your chances of hitting your front sleeve are equally high, which is going to, for me, I'm going to troubleshoot this and say that's probably a huge part of the reason why um, you're having some problems with broadhead flight. But if that's not the case, then most likely if you had someone that set you up with something that you can't control, there could be a chance that you have an arrow that's not set up properly for your bow setup as well. So, you know, when we talk about these models, you really have to think about, you know, you need to do a self-evaluation and really do a look at yourself honestly and say, okay, I'm, you know, I really don't shoot that much. You know, I want, I really want to be able to go out. I want to enjoy shooting. I want to be able to, to shoot good groups. If my friends call me over, I want to, you know, you want to, you want to look like you can shoot, you know, 
a lot of a lot of friends don't have most friends don't have a chronograph at the end of the driveway where you have to shoot through it in order to come shoot with your buddies. You know, most people just, you just take your bow in the backyard and you start shooting. So if you're 10 feet per second slower than someone else, do you really think people there are going to like look at you and be like, Hey dude, you only shooting 260? What the hell? You know, get something to where you can pull it back. You can shoot with friends for a while. You can be comfortable. Um, you know, I know I can shoot 80 pounds. I can shoot 90 pounds if I want, but um, I still shoot 70 pounds because I actually feel like I can shoot for a long time there. I feel comfortable there. Um, I shoot a 34-inch bow because I'm comfortable there, and I shoot certain cams on my target bows because I'm comfortable there. I want to be comfortable because if you're if you're having buck fever, if you're at a tournament and you're competing for something major on the line for your first time, those are pretty uncomfortable positions to be in anyway. The last thing you want to do is be uncomfortable when you grab a hold of your bow. I mean, that's you're kind of setting yourself up to to shit a pickle, I think. Yep. And and to echo you, I think a six inch brace height bow can be extremely critical to accuracy if you're not putting the time in you know to me that goes back to um an aggressive target cam which to me a turbo cam is i mean it's a 350 bow um and now you're taking a 350 speed with a six inch brace height and 70 to 72 pounds probably and, and there's a lot of critical aspects and elements to that shot process and there's a lot going on that if you're shooting once a week or less um, it's basically like you're picking up a new bow almost every single time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's literally like pulling something for the first time and you're halfway scared to do it. Super true. Well, the one time I don't have shades in here, of course I've, it's like Christmas time. So <laughs> every time a UPS driver pulls up here, she goes bonkers. That's what happens when your UPS driver gives your dog a dog biscuit one time, like for the rest of your life. <laughs> She's going to hear that brown truck about four miles down the road and already start raising hell. Um, yeah, and, and they stamp each one of your boxes special with a, a stamp so that that driver knows that there's a dog at that address and to bring treats. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I've got another question here from Purdue Jacob, and he's asking... Um, I have a problem with my shooting. When I settle my pin, it doesn't want to settle on the dot. It settles above the dot. Any pointers or advice? Evan, you want to go first? Um, yeah, because I have the same issue with it doing it below it. Um, one is how I have mentally and physically trained over the last 15 years on, on setting up my shot process. Um I hate using the word target panic or, or even alluding to it, but it's, it's a, there's a mild form of it there. Um, some things you can do is, is you know, take some pictures and, and evaluate yourself on your shoulder alignment, your, your anchor, and, and are you getting that elbow up or down? Are you pulling too far down? Do you have enough weight up front to... And that's something I would say, if, if you're a high holder... And you have a good hold. There's 
a steady, smooth, consistent movement and it's just above the target, I would start adding just a little bit of weight out to the front and kind of letting my body settle and bringing that down onto target. Ah, you're going to stabilize her in there, huh? I I would. All right. That's, and I said, that's, that would be a starting point for me. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts? I'm curious because like I said, I have, I have the opposite problem. Well, here's my thought process. So if you're able to hold steady either on or off the target, like if your sight picture is really solid, perfectly above the dot or it's really solid perfectly under the dot then changing stabilizers is which really are meant for helping to stabilize it's obvious that you're already stable because you can actually freeze there so changing the weight of the bow in my opinion will just slowly gravitate towards changing posture in order to do it because you're just going to get to the point where you're adding more and more and more and more weight to, you know, to be able to pull yourself down onto that dot. Or a lot of people, I think the more they weigh their bow down, the more likely they are to freeze beneath the dot as well. So I think the key there is recognizing the real root of the problem, which is the fact that you aren't able to mentally hold your pin on the target that's the real problem i mean we can we can throw a band-aid on there and band-aids last for a little while but eventually you're gonna you're gonna bleed through it and you're gonna have to just put another one on so unless you want to get into that vicious cycle which unfortunately a lot of people end up having to resort to just because that's their only option then really you need to start looking at what techniques should I practice to really force myself to to maybe be comfortable with holding in the center of the target because that's the real problem is what do you need to do so that you can actually hold perfectly still in the center of the target so I believe one of the best ways to do that is by practicing using small target images that you can cut out you can cut them out of a magazine you can cut them out of really anything you can find a cool picture of a really good buck cut that picture out of your next peterson's bow hunting magazine and tape that on the inside of your riser and really start to get used to tape it on there so that your pin is perfectly in the center of that that spot and then you have to start to practice with that and blank bale shoot with that so that your brain starts to accept an a, a mental picture of your pin being in the center of the target that's the key the other thing too is you know, if people have ever looked at my dead center segments from, you know, when I have the TV show, on a lot of those dead center segments, you'll see that there's um, some of the targets rarely change in my shop. And the reason they don't change is because certain targets I actually do my blank bailing on um, 
or I'll just draw back and work on putting my pin on and I'll just shoot like an air bow and all I'm doing is I stand close enough to where when I draw back and I come into my peep I get really comfortable with my pin being completely within the center of the X that's one thing by shooting targets that are slightly bigger um, you know if you have a target that, that's slightly bigger you get more in, you get more comfortable with being able to put your pin there because you can see that whole color all the way around your pin. The more you start to focus on a super small dot, again, this goes back to the basis of you're covering it with an object and your brain is trying to, your brain, the way you're programmed, is really wanting to confirm that what you're telling it to put your pin on because you're your, your mind knows if my pin is on there, it hits it. So you've kind of got this like, it's almost, it's almost like a, um, a weird bug in a computer hack because, or in a computer program, because there's one program that says if the pin's on the target, then the arrow goes exactly where the pin is. There's another program in your mind that says you have to, um, in order, in order for you to hit the target, your, your pin must be on the target. So you've got these two things. You've got one brain saying the arrow goes where the pin is. You've got it. So your brain's like knows wherever the pin is, that's where it's going to go. But then on this other program, your brain's saying that you have to be looking, you know, the pin needs to be perfectly in the center. So what happens is when you cover it, all of a sudden there's not like another program that allows you to to be comfortable with not seeing what you're aiming at. That's why a lot of people that shoot indoor rounds, like Vegas rounds, they really struggle with shooting the same type of pin apparatus. They continue, you know, a lot of people change a lot because I think the especially with like inner X's now. The more people try to shoot a high X count, the worse off they get because, you know, a lot of people start to really start to change their pin apparatuses because they're so focused on trying to hit a smaller object that it just really gets to be difficult. So I actually do a reverse training. I just focus on forcing that pin in the center of the target, either by shooting uh, blank bales with a taped image on my sight. Or I'll shoot at a distance that's so close that my literally when I come into my scope, I'm sitting in a gold. I'm sitting in the center, and I'll and I'll execute reps that way. You know, you're talking right now. You're a prime candidate, dude, because you're talking about how you're not in shooting shape, and you know you're just not able to shoot many ends before you're fatigued. Dude, you're the perfect guy right now. You're the perfect guy to go and work on this style of shooting just for the fact that it's going to allow you high reps. You're going to be able to, to shoot a lot of arrows. You're really not focusing on score. What you're focusing on is solidifying your sight image. And the other thing people need to get in the habit too um, I talked about this in my live feed the other day, 
was you really have to get in the habit of learning how to point your pin on the target. Like when you're going through your, your shooting process and you raise that bow up from your side, put your pin on the middle of that target right then and pull your bow back, come into your anchor, adjust your head so you're sending through your peep, and if you really get good at drawing properly, your pin is going to be sitting in the right spot to begin with. Now, if you get in the habit of drawing low to the ground, and you got to bring your bow up that far. Or if you're way off your target face and you have to come all the way up to the target face, then there's no doubt you're going to be more likely to freeze under the target. Or if you draw way above the target and then you have to come down a long way, you really need to be very close to that target once you settle into your peep that's a that's kind of a one of the arts or the art of drawing is actually drawing the bow so that once you start looking through the peep you're actually acquiring the target already mm-hmm. yep and and i draw just above the target um when i hit my anchor on a vegas i'm usually sitting right around the the 6-7 line and then locking that shoulder in and just kind of come down into it. And it, it'll sit in the center for about a second and a half to two and then, in, again, it's that confirmation and then it just drops one ring and I'm looking right over my dot at 12 o'clock into the X. What do you mean by so, drop? And it'll sit there. What do you mean by drop your shoulder in? So, so... When I come in, I anchor and then just do a little. Um, how does how does Coach Lee put it? It's his. Um, it's right before the expansion, so it's it's that that connection of the shoulder. So I I just I tighten my shoulder and and set it in the position. So because I I used to have a position where I was not actually into my back my entire shot was actually in my bicep and tricep and it caused me to have a very high elbow position. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I set that shoulder to pull that scapula into position in my back and utilize the back muscles instead of my bicep and tricep. And that also has helped my alignment and bring that elbow level down. So I have a better line from my front hand through my forearm and elbow. So are you, when you're talking about um, like dropping it down, you're almost, have you watched some of the videos that I posted recently about just um, scapular strengthening and scapular positions? Because it sounds like what you're actually doing is just bringing that shoulder, that scapula down in a way instead of, instead of having it compressed against the back spine. Is that correct? Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. Yep. Yeah. If you're, if you're, when you're, when you're, when you're dropping that shoulder, as long as you're bringing it down and away from the spine, then that's a, that's a good thing to focus on. Now, if you were, if you told me that you were, you know, kind of settling it back, like compressing it back against the spine, then you're almost setting yourself up to just have to either manipulate the release in order to get to fire. Or punch the release to get it to fire, but 
you know, certainly um, keeping that scapula down and forward away from the spine is, is critical to proper archery form. Right. Yeah, um, it's almost it's almost a lat engagement is what it feels like. Well, that is... That, that scapula kind of rolls in. Yeah. That that's, is... That's, and that's the focus on, like, when I when I make that movement, like, that's where my focus is at, is bringing that and engaging that lat. So if that, if that kind of helps people picture or feel what, what I'm doing as far as the engagement process. Yeah, 100% it's lat engagement. Yep. That's totally what it is. Um... All right, well, let me grab the next question here. Does that help you, though, what I was talking with you? Can you understand some of those training principles, Evan, just for, you know, kind of getting your pins settled in? Um, all right. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. I kind of asked you to be on. You're probably like, what the heck, dude? You're talking more than me. Sorry about that, but I... I when it when I'm doing I, I'm questions, good. I'm sitting here learning. All right, and Evan's an I, awesome I'm shot. I'm taking notes over here. <laughs> I know. Well, I wanted. I actually was wanting to to dig in some some tuning stuff. I didn't know if there was um. What's for any of the Hoyt listeners? You got any super? Uh, what's some what's some little super tricks that maybe I haven't talked about or people don't know about that you could give them. Hmm. I actually, well, and there's and there's a couple of things you can do. Um, you hear the term, and I know you've gotten a question a lot um, throughout the podcast about cambling and and things like that on tuning, and we haven't gotten to talk a whole lot because our our time in in the shop was so brief. I have a hand pressure in my grip that actually causes a lot of left hairs. Um, and initially, um, I started seeing that in 2014 when I made the switch from the carbon matrix with that RKT cam mm -hmm. to a turbo, which was the, the first turbo that Hoyt had come out with. Um, so it was a non-turbo cam. It was just a, the first generation Z5 design, but it was a 33 axle axle and a six inch brace height. And I had been shooting a 400 spine arrow, and all of a sudden I noticed, obviously running a 400 spine with a 28 inch draw in the number two cam in that E position being long, I was weak. So I stepped up to a 330 spine and was still getting the exact same tear. And what I have since learned being here and talking more with engineers and playing more with spines and, and cam positions and draw lengths and things like that is a lot of that tear for me is because of where I physically put my grip into the bow. Mm -hmm. um, I get further into it on the thumb side so i'm actually almost inducing a touch of thumb side pressure into yep. the riser which is which is causing that left tear um so i've actually went back and started kind of reworking my grip and my setup this year that i took on my kansas hunt was a, a carbon 34 with the number two cam in the c position which is 
28 inch and then I shoot with a grip off so I have the same feel between my, my target bows and my hunting bows and I actually got better tunes and better broadhead flight with that 400 spine so I was actually able to go back down um, which actually increased my speed a little bit um, for shooting you know longer distances and, and you know if you got a white tail like I keep having them look up at me like we talked about that that sixth sense. I can get it there just a little bit faster, um, but still have my kinetic energy and still have um, the speed and the penetration I need to, to get it there quietly and, and make good shots. So um, what prior to oh, re- reworking my grip, I was, I was a cable tuner, um, so I would actually induce... You know, straight out of the box, what I was typically doing was adding three to three and a half twists on the left-hand yoke just to automatically correct and compensate for how I physically got into the grip of the bow. Yep. Now you're, now you're giving us some stuff, big guy. Yeah, yoke so. tuning is super popular, um, and it's super important right now. There's, there's kind of a big change in... Um, there's a big change in archery systems as of late, if I'm going to be honest with everyone out there. Um, a lot of these bows that are on the market now, they they do require, um, they just require more um, small little tweaks like that. You know, a lot of, a lot of things have changed with grips, with cam, with, you know, with cam position or uh, cam designs and then grip positions and you know, a lot of people out there who haven't been training how to grip the bow properly, some of the bows now, especially with the really high let-offs, that's the only thing, you know, years ago people said high let-offs weren't as forgiving. High let-off bows are super forgiving, but the one thing that high let-off bows will cause an issue on is when you come to full draw, you know, you can almost feel like, for a part there like you can almost let go of the string like the bow feels like it's almost locked at full draw a lot of these super high let off bows that have like a real big valley and the problem is you can grab your front hand and you can twist it around quite a bit and there's a lot of torque in the system um all that stuff starts to really magnify um those tears so Depending on how you get into your grip, which a lot of people are more common like you, they have more thumb pressure, so they're actually kind of coming deeper into their grip, um, especially than what I personally try to coach people into. You know, and that in those points when you start to get a tear through paper that you really can't correct, um, you know, you can you can move the rest left or right, or and it, and it still you can get it better, but it still doesn't totally clear up utilizing that yoke which is a big reason why i like i actually like having a yoke system still some of the bow models that are out there you don't have the option to be able to manipulate your cam lean or manipulate the limb and how it's you know how it's laying at full draw and it's really important that you have that once you start getting uh, more in depth with tuning you start to realize that you can really manipulate 
how that arrow travels through that bow and what type of performance you get um, with paper tuning by twisting your yoke cable. So were you always twisting your left side? I mean, was it just common no matter what bow you had or? Yeah. Um, looking back, I should have been doing it sooner. Um, cause it, 2010, uh, so the first year that the carbon matrix was released, I actually went the opposite direction and what I did is I, I pressed my bow, pulled my E-clip off of my upper left yoke and actually flipped that the yoke harness. Hold? Yeah, the harness holder. Yeah. So, yeah, so instead of being away on the outside of the left, I actually flipped it inside mm-hmm. um, to reduce that tension, not even realizing that I went back later and actually twisted that back up because I, I relieved the pressure and actually leaned the cam the other way, which made that left tear even worse. Um, yeah. Just left in that position and, and started tightening that up. Yeah. So, yeah, and I've pretty much I got on where I pull them out of the box, put it in the press, three twists in the left yoke, center everything, and start there. Yeah, the so and and coming from a shop like you said, most guys are very very handsy. Um, they're mm-hmm. either wrapping all the way around that grip, um, or they're they're sinking that hand so deep that they're getting that lifeline farther into the the grip position and causing a lot of that pressure. So even with most guys, as we're testing both trying to figure out what they want, if I get a bow that they settle on that has that yoke system first thing three twists we're starting right here okay well if any of you out there are struggling with the left tear three twists and start there um and also uh really look at where you're putting that grip position on your hand if you're if you're crossing your lifeline which is you know when you're a baby and you're in the womb and your hands are all curled up and you're sitting here it creates that lifeline. That's, right? a, that's a good Adam Sandler, little Nikki voice, by the way. <laughs> well, I've got backup if I ever need it, but that's your lifeline. So if your you grip, go. if your grip is on your thumb side of that lifeline, you're good. If you cross over to the main palm of your hand side of your lifeline, then it's it's dog do. You're gonna have to start yoke tuning. So. Uh, get that part, get that part fixed. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh crap. Oh, okay. I know what this one is. Um, so this guy's name is pay duck. He's at, I'm, I kind of cut it off, but I'm pretty sure he's asking me, um, what type of process I have for selecting my indoor arrows. I did a screenshot and it chopped it, so I don't have the the full thing, unfortunately. So, what uh, what's going to be your process, Evan? Then I'll tell you mine. Um, I walk into my garage and look at what I have for a twenty-seven series, since I can shoot it in Vegas and see which veins are still good. Um, God dang, dude! So it's terrible. <laughs> I I haven't shot I haven't shot an aluminum um, in a while. 
I run the the Easton full bore. I've got the 350 still. Um, and, and honestly, it's because that's the arrow I have. Um, it's it's cut long. I've got 150 and 200 grain points I can play with back and forth. Um, I do have both sets of unibushings. So I have the the Genoc bushing as well as the Super 3D bushing. Um, so depending on how my knocks fit, I can change bushings out and and play with different knocks based on the the fit. Um, other than that, I I've got to be honest. Um, I'm one of those guys that once I once I find an arrow setup that that typically works, um, I don't do a a ton of changing, and it's only because in the last nine years um, I haven't been able to have the amount of time to do a ton of testing and playing. So as I'm doing that, when I find something that works, that's usually my go-to. And if it doesn't work, I have a backup. And I've been very fortunate with these full boards that this particular set I'm running right now with my the Prevail, it's the original dozen that came into the shop in Colorado the first year they were released. It's the it's the first dozen that ever came in, and Kurt Geist and I bought that first dozen from the shop and split them, and I'm still running my original six. So I just change points out and change bushings as I need to. Yeah, well, the one thing I'll tell you is I've always wanted to shoot awesome with a super big arrow, um, mm-hmm. but my best Vegas rounds I've ever shot and the cleanest looking targets I've ever shot are with a smaller diameter shaft. I've just never been able to rip and granted I can shoot three hundreds with full bores or 27s, mm-hmm. but when it comes to actual like inner tens and just when I make a poor shot, the margin of error that I found, I just seem, I seem to have better luck when I really just focus on an arrow that that allows me the m- most minimal variance when I make a crappy shot. Like everything I do with tuning is, I do more tuning based around the fact of what happens when I when I make a shitty shot. I think that. Yep. You know what? What defines you? Well, I shouldn't say that, but you know, as a bow hunter, you're going to make mistakes. Okay, I've bow hunted enough to where I I know some of my common flaws, some of my common mistakes. Um, a lot of them because I film myself so much. Um, I really have to focus on drawing my bow back long before I need to to make the shot. So with that in mind, I really try to focus on having a bow that I can stay at full draw a long time. You know, I want to be able to mm-hmm. remain at full draw. Now when it comes to indoor arrows, I want to be able to shoot my round, like my practice round. I want to be able to go out and practice. And then I want to be able to, when I make a crappy shot, I want it to still be in the 10 ring. That's what I want. When I make that crappy yep. shot, then I'm 
I'm learning. At that point, I'm trying to decide what do I really need to do with this setup to where it's going to be the most forgiving for me. So my selection on indoor arrows typically has gravitated towards 23 diameter arrows or I've done well with 25s. Never done well with 26s, never done well with 27s. Um, I can shoot good, but like I said, there's, I would rather, um, I would make, rather make a poor shot and I hit the dead center line of the, of the 10 ring rather than make the same type of iffy shot and the arrow and a fat shaft arrow is barely, barely hanging the line. So I picked the shaft. Um, 2315s have been incredibly good for people to tune. Um, this year, I haven't really worked on fletchings yet with the Prevail, but last year with the Hyper Edges, I actually shot um, a 3-inch um, AAE um, Max Stealth vein. I put a pretty pretty severe offset on it, so it was. I got it spinning fast. Um, for indoor archery, that's the one time where I'm an advocate of having an arrow with high revolution because, you know, you're trying to get a pretty big projectile to stabilize as quick as possible. When you're shooting um, your hunting arrow, you know, you have quite a bit of time for that arrow to stabilize. You know, obviously you want it to be shooting pretty good when it's at 20 yards, but... You know, when you're shooting an indoor setup, it has to be immaculate. You know, it has to be perfect. So more spin is better. And then also there's, with indoor arrows, you have the ability to choose a lot of different point weights and and different uh, configurations for your points. And I'm normally settling in, if I have a 2315 arrow, I'm normally settling in somewhere around... 180 to 220 grains in the front and it shoots really really nice so that's pretty much my basis and and especially with the aluminums the aluminums naturally are going to be a stiffer spine than a carbon is um so that's one thing that i think a lot of people don't take into account or enough of a thought on is breaking down that spine and getting enough point weight yep yep exactly but see with like the 27s and the full bores you know even when i shoot a 300 grain point or something you know i can get it to where i know my spine matches correct my left and rights are good you know i know like it'll shoot the same it'll tune the same i can get it to shoot the same increase in the points but my marginal shots are further off with that bigger arrow. I'm not sure why, but mm-hmm. it just seems like I haven't really got them to work as good as, you know, there's a few guys that get them shooting awesome. I mean, Chance had 26s shooting probably his best I've ever seen him shoot um, the second year he won it. I mean, those 26s were shooting so freaking nice. But I've just never really been able to get that. And I know that even when I shot 3D, I shot way better with a 2312 or, you know, even a 24 
um, 13 than I did with the 25s and 26s. But, you know, I just feel yeah. like, may, and maybe it's the length of my draw and my arrow's a longer arrow. You know, I don't, I have a pretty long arrow, so maybe that has something to do with it too. Um, yeah. Let's see. And, and I've got some, some of the super drive 25s in that 290 spine. Um, and that is an arrow I'll break out here in a couple weeks and do some, some testing with. Um, just because the process that they're building that shaft with versus the full bores, I think, is more consistent. And so the tolerances are a little bit better uh, with a more consistent spine throughout the entire length of the shaft. Yep. Yeah, they're just, um, it's a good arrow. On some, for for, some of the foreign shooters that are shooting in the Stramit, um, it's probably not going to be durable enough. You know, that's the other thing, too, that factors into what I shoot. It's the type of target you have. <clears throat> if you've got um, if you've got a Stramit target or super dense target, aluminum arrows are just so much more durable to just sit there and pound in them. You know, a lot of Europeans always liked the 15-wall thickness because they didn't ever have to worry about any arrows bending or, you know, having having any type of fractures from um from having a target that's on a wacky angle or something like that um yep while i'm talking about arrows though evan one thing i had i gotta give a i gotta give a few shout outs here i'm a little bit late on this um and i'm missing a pretty important one so there's someone from god i think it was canada sorry dude i don't have your name bummed out but you sent, um, I had a guy send me like four dozen 50 grain brass inserts custom machined for my ACC 360s. So you're the, you're the bomb.com, dude. Thank you so much for that. I'm bummed that I have no idea what your name is. Then I got two other guys here. Um, these guys are. Looks like Chad Rumsby and Drew Robbins. Um, these guys actually um, heard what I was talking about on the podcast, and they made me some 50 grain deep six inserts, which is pretty sweet. These this will be awesome. I can shoot um, this 50 grain deep six insert. What they did was they actually took um, a brass rod and attached it to the back of the deep six insert and then just kind of sand uh-huh. it off the back. Um, worked really, really awesome. So those guys are cool. The other thing is... Um, I, want, I want to report on those when you do it. You want to report? I, I, I want to report because putting 50 up front on a 330 spine, breaking it down for for me... Oh yeah, I'm I'm curious now. Well, that's yeah. going to be the ticket. Well, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to slap it on my 280s, which thankfully they came out with the deep six. But see, I heard they're phasing out the deep six. That's the thing. That's you know that's what happens. Mm. Uh, that's why I kind of stick with some of the the traditional aero models because I don't like to be on all in love with the one and then all of a sudden they change it. Um, yeah. So, 
Um, th- yeah, that happened. The other thing, too, by the way, uh, that test, Evan, isn't going to happen anytime soon. It's like, god dang, I think it's four degrees outside right now. So I'll test them for you. I, I have a nice facility wait, just down the road. I can get uh, it's 100 up, or so yards inside if I'm... <laughs> it's up to nine. It's up to nine. Nine degrees right now. Oh, there you go. Yeah, today's the day. There you go. If anyone sends me a message today that says, um, should I get the carbon defiant or the pro defiant? <laughs> well, today would be the day where you could grab that, grab an aluminum riser and, you know, feel like the kid from Christmas Story when he puts his tongue on the flagpole. Um, <laughs> the exact image I had in my head. Yep. Yep. Um, so. The next shout out I got to give is um, Bolab Custom Strings sent me some strings to try out. So I'm going to give these a roll too. Um, this first set's made in Brownell, which is not my preference. Um, I'm a BCY guy. I've played a lot with Brownell and it's not my favorite, but I'm going to give those a try. Um, then the last shout out I got to give um, a buddy of mine, Mike. And Mike, you know who you are. Um, sent me a freaking. He sent me a flag from. Um, oh crap! I'm gonna get it wrong. I'm pretty sure he's, he sent me a flag that um, from Seals Team Eight from July Fourth, and I forget what year. And then uh, I got a really cool. Um, medallion like a seals team medallion with that i'm doing a terrible job of that's awesome. in that respect right now cherish cherish those, those yeah so for those I, of you I've, I've been fortunate enough to to train with some some guys from 10th group so it's a it's an sf green beret unit station out of fort carson and, and i got a bunch of guys i graduated with that are either in the team or in in the group and i'll tell you what hug a veteran and tell him thank you because I've heard just enough stories that uh, some people need to to recognize that oh, yeah. we take some things for granted, that's for sure. Heck yeah, they're saving our life, protecting us. So thanks everybody who's... Oh, one more thing. Someone, I don't know who, who this is from, someone sent me an Akibo. It's like a strength trainer, which I've seen them advertised. Um, I don't know if Akibo just sent that, but there was no note in it. Maybe whoever sent it got lost in my messages um try to message me through instagram or send a message to sharon through the web store but yeah sorry i can't give you props but i'm gonna play around with that some too i played around with it quite a bit um parts of it i like um i want to be able to permanently attach my loop a little bit better it's got like a velcro loop that kind of scratches your face when you use it but um, yeah, all that stuff's pretty good. Well, Evan, how many people have been staring in your office wondering why you haven't been working for two hours? I, I, luckily, I uh, I turned my light off, so the uh, I'm in the dark and only one is looked in. <laughs> <laughs> how many times has well, Mike Looper been texting you saying, dude, are you coming into work? Um... One, two, three, four. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I got. I don't have any for Mike, so well, I sent him some last night, and uh, 
sure I kept him up with texts at 11 and 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning. So I expect to get those either later tonight as turnaround is fair play or he'll get me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, anything's fair play with Looper, and, yeah, it'll never stop. Um, do you have anything you want to ask or anything you want to throw in, Evan? Uh, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I uh, appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. And um, if you guys are either at ATA show or if you guys are shooters and in Vegas or Louisville or any of the ASAs, um, I will be there. Come over to Hoyt Booth or catch me and love to love to chat with you guys if you have questions about the products or um tuning or anything that i don't know anything that comes to mind oh yeah we know i love talking shop so so well evan's an awesome dude um we were well i was debating whether we were going to dive down a, a tuning road but i like the way we went it's been a little while since i've answered some questions from people out there I'm feeling like a new man. I got up at 2, and I totally flushed my Instagram messages. Took This is my third day of trying, but I got it. Well, well it's not flushed now. <laughs> I just opened it. <laughs> I, I'm going to forward you some of my emails. Maybe you can help me with some of those right now. That's not happening. <laughs> That's not happening. So for those of you listening right now, it's Thursday, the 15th of December, and we're going to be doing a live feed Saturday, um, 7 p.m. Central Time on the Knock on TV Facebook page, doing a live feed showing you exactly how to set up the new Knock on Elevate Rest, um, which I'm jacked about. Um, I think It's wicked. It yeah, is huh? yeah. That's that's coming from it's coming from a Hoyt guy. You want one, Evan? I would love one. Oh, dude, I'll send you one. But there's I, <laughs> there's not many I, left. Just so everyone out there is listening, there's not many <laughs> left. Um, but they are on knockonarchery.com. And then also, finally got my Yeti cups back in. Got the knock on Yeti cups. Just went back in stock too. So. Um, Oh, I gotta rework those. my Christmas list. Yeah, you better polish that sucker up. Oh, and there's actually one more thing that's coming. Oh, I can't really say. If I say it, Sharon will freaking backhand me. Um, uh, so you it's, tease. It's, yep. It's for, for everyone who's listening. I'll, just so you know, he will do this all the time. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I put out. <laughs> I, I put out. I put out. <laughs> Um, no, I'll wear it. I'll wear it Saturday. But all I can tell you is, got something cool. I've been waiting months for them to get here, and they're supposed to be here tomorrow. So I don't know for sure that they'll be here tomorrow. So that's why I better shut my mouth, make sure they get here, and there's not like not some major UPS accident somewhere. But um, got something really cool coming for all you knock on shooters out there i'll leave it at that so thanks evan for coming on appreciate it man thanks everybody so much and uh actually i've got my i've got another good buddy coming on later on today i think i might take a few days before i put before i post it depends how much work i got going to get this thing edited up but uh thanks evan appreciate it dude 
Had a good time. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Have a good one, guys. All right. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com